unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad to be back on the show with you. You recently had a birthday, and I was happy to hear that you had a good birthday. I I did. I'm starting to get old, you know. But, um, you know, better than the alternative, as the old saying goes. So, yeah, we, we had a good time. Oh, you hit 29. Poor guy. I know. <laughs> Pretty soon I'm going to start to lose my hair. Oh, no. Oh, man, I already hit that point. <laughs> okay, so all of that out of the way, what do we got lined up for the podcast today? Okay, so this is How to Critique Your Copy, Part 1. It's a two-parter. One of the things people ask me the most for is copy critiques. And whether it's an A-lister with multiple controls for a big publisher, like I did earlier this year, or a B-lister gunning to become an A-lister, or a business owner who wrote the copy, I look for the same things. It's interesting because the better the copywriter, the harder I have to look. The guys who are really good make everything appear to be smooth and perfect. There's usually a handful of tiny, almost hidden flaws, but once those flaws are fixed, the copy gets supercharged to a new level. Even so, no matter who wrote for the copy, no matter who wrote the copy, I look for the same things. There are certain things any piece of copy needs to have, certain tests it needs to pass if it's going to work in the marketplace. And today I'm going to share five of those things, five of those tests, and I'll show you how I look at them so you can do the same for your own copy. And I've got six more, but they'll have to wait until we do another show. However, you won't have to wait a minute for this copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. And most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health and finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. So, Today's episode is not about how to write a VSL or a sales letter. I mean, either you know that already, or you can get my book, or you can get Nathan's book, or listen to any number of our other more than 200 podcasts for that. Plenty of good info out there on the initial writing phase. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, the total is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a powerful idea. Once you put your copy together, you've got a number of moving parts working together. If one or more of them is out of true, you could end up with a big problem. So this is not about how to write your own copy. It's about how to go over it after it's written. I made an effort to spell out my own thought process when I do a paid critique. And what I did was mentally walk through what I look at along the way. Then I came up with 11 necessary things that need to be right to make sure the copy, as written, 
stands as good a chance of making the maximum sales as possible. We'd have to rush through all 11 to fit them into one show, and I don't want to do that. And you don't want me to do that, believe me. So I've broken the list into two shows, and today is the first five, and we'll do the remaining six on a future show. All right. Any thoughts before we jump into our first five? No, I'm just excited about this. Editing is where the real magic happens, I feel like. And I've heard the saying, writing is editing. I think copywriting is definitely editing. For sure. For sure. So one thing I want to say before we jump in, and we will, when I do this, I don't look at it like a censor, like a judge. I look at it like an explorer. I'm very curious to see what I can find. And I look at it like an improviser. Hmm, how could I tweak that if I find something that's not quite working? I think if you can keep a kind of lighter, more inquisitive attitude about it, you'll get better results. But again, you do you. How Whatever works for you is what you're going to do. That's how I do it. All right. So now let's get to our list. Number one, new word. Grab ability, grabability. This is not about a reach around. Grabability. First <laughs> of all, you want to get yes to this question. Does your copy grab the reader's, the viewer's attention from the start? And does it hold on tight to the end? In a way, grabability is the whole ball game. But in another way, it's just the first inning. There's more to a copy critique than just making sure that the copy has grabability. But without this, nothing else matters very much. I mean, maybe you've noticed this yourself. Some VSLs or sales pages take a hold of your attention, and you can't let go until you're finished. Other ones, you could take them or leave them, and most of the time, you end up leaving them. So where does grab go from, and what are its component parts? One of these parts is your market-to-message match, probably my favorite Dan Kennedy term. Market to message match, message to market match means you're sending the right message to a market who would be interested in what you're offering. And they have enough access to money to buy it if they want. So that's one thing, message to market match. Another thing is your level of enthusiasm as it shows up in the copy. You know, the great sales trainer Zig Ziglar said, selling is essentially a transfer of feelings, which I agree. When the feeling you have is enthusiasm and you're able to transfer that all the way through your copy, that feeling will get you way ahead of the game. But that's just sort of the high-level stuff. Let's talk about the parts that are on the page. First one is your big picture, your hook, and or your big idea. This is something that's pretty hard to break down to a formula or a template. Sometimes you stumble on it when you're talking about your offer to someone who really doesn't understand and you want them to. You struggle for a way to explain it. And in the process, you come up with such a good, clear, simple idea that you know you've got to use it in your copy. Other times, it comes through research and brainstorming. It could come in the shower. Wherever you get it, you'll know it when you see it. In the way that you react to and the way others react to it, that's how you'll know, and the way you react to it and the way others react to it. When they're not trying to be cool and rate you for style points or cleverness, but when they're a little more open and you know not wrapped up in all kinds of trying to look good and just sort of a sense of awe or a look of understanding. 
So that's the big idea. Now, once you're satisfied with your big idea, you want to look at your headline. It's been said hundreds of times before, and it's worth saying one more time. The headline accounts for 80 to 90% of the effectiveness of your ad. Now, how does that all fit in with the big idea? Well, your headline and your hook or big idea may be the same thing, or the headline may be something that at a very practical, tangible level implements the big idea and injects it into your copy. As Dean Schwartz said, and I'm probably paraphrasing a word or two here, the only job of the headline is to get your prospect to read your first sentence. And the job of the first sentence is to get your prospect to read your second sentence. So you can easily see how your hook and headline are such crucial parts of your grabability. One other thing to keep in mind when you go over your copy is this question. Did I bury my lead? This happens to all of us. And what it means is sometimes your best headline or lead sentence doesn't show up until the second paragraph or the 42nd paragraph. And this happened to me in a project a couple weeks ago with copy I was writing. My partner was almost gleeful as he told me, you buried your lead, like I caught you. Yeah. And he was right. I wasn't as happy as he was, but I was happy that he found it because one line of my copy made a much better headline. I really like how you started off this little tangent, which is you have to grab their attention, but you have to keep grabbing their attention. I know that sometimes when I'm reading a book, I'll get to a certain point where I'll, it'll be halfway through the book. And every time I get to this point, I get six or seven sentences in and I'm like, I don't even remember what I was thinking about or reading about. And I have to go back. And sometimes the way a book is written in that particular part, I'll have to go back three or four times before I finally absorb what was in that section of the book. And you definitely don't want that happening with your copy. So making sure that it stays grabby through the whole thing and not just at the beginning. A lot of people teach, you got to grab their attention at the beginning, but you got to keep hold of that attention the whole way through. Yeah. Good point. And a good book shouldn't do that, but I've had the same experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes the author just didn't do the work to make something clear, do his own mental sorting ahead of time. We'll talk about that a little later in the third part, but let's get to the second part now. Second part is your claims. And the key question you ask when you're reviewing your own copy is how unique and how believable are my claims? Okay, so let's get clear on what a claim is. A claim is a proactive assertion. It's like a promise. If I say A does B, then that's a claim. If I say apples make you feel better, that's a claim. If I say axes work better than barbells for building muscle mass, that's a claim. If I say analog is always better than digital, that's a claim. Now, Did you notice at least one of these claims didn't seem right to you? It was probably the one about axes if you're a bodybuilder. Now, I'm bringing that up because it's important that people be at least intrigued and willing to believe your claims, even if they don't totally believe them right away. And this is something you're going to be looking for when you're critiquing copy. Very, very important. By the way, if you're saying, well, I, I don't want to take the risk, I, I don't want to worry about whether my claim is unique, I don't want to worry about whether my claim is unique or believable, I'll just skip that part. No, 
you pretty much have to make claims to sell anything. They may be mild claims or wild claims. They may be factual claims or aspirational claims like, if you do this, wonderful things will happen. My point is, you can't make sales without making claims in your copy. So you might as well make claims that are unique and believable. I'll take it one step further. Your claims need to be true and provable. That's especially important with offers in regulated industries, like we talk about every single time, BizOp Financial Health. The regulators will eventually find you if you're doing good business and you're making claims you can't back up. That's a whole nother podcast. And we had a good one a while back with a lawyer on this topic, Amy Nisham. So I won't spend a lot of time on it here, but assuming that you've got those things covered, the general idea for a claim that works with prospects is plain vanilla with a twist. Okay. What does that mean? What does that mean, David? Okay. Plain vanilla means in the realm of the familiar. If your claims are too over the top or bizarre, prospects will have a hard time believing them. With a twist means something new, different, intriguing, desirable. This is important because if it's the same old, same old, your prospect will think, I've seen this before, nothing new here, and they'll move on to something else. Now, this seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Actually, it's just threading the needle. Prospects are finicky and contradictory. You want their money, you have to offer them something that's appealing in your claims, but the cold hard reality is they also want something new and different. So they want the familiar and the reliable, but they also want the new and different. And that's why good copywriters get paid the big bucks. They know how to thread that needle. And make no mistake, it's your job to blend familiar and with a twist together in your claims. I'll explain why it's your job in a couple minutes. Another thing about claims when you're reviewing them, or really when you're writing them, you need to have enough confidence in what you're saying in your claims to make them bold and definite. Don't, you know, Woody Allen around it. Get right in there. And finally, your claims need to be instantly understandable to a distracted person. This is true for all your copy, of course, but especially for claims. Remember from another show, Vic Schwab's rule, the thing your prospect wants to know more than anything else is what your product will do for them. People read your copy or watch your VSL with less than full attention. Your claims need to jump out at them and give them a rich understanding of what your product will do for them. I don't remember who I first heard this from, but the idea of an orange tennis ball for playing fetch with your dog. The tennis ball is the familiar, the vanilla. Everybody knows that it's great to play fetch with a tennis ball. Dogs love them. But tennis balls get lost in the grass because they're green and they camouflage in and sometimes the dog can't find them and then you can't find them. But having a bright orange tennis ball solves that problem and that's the twist. So having what you're familiar with, but there's a problem with it that nobody else has addressed and you have this new twist that solves that problem that everybody's frustrated with makes your product, your service much more appealing than all of the competition out there. So it's a proven market, but now you've added a new twist that helps capitalize on what you know is already selling. That's a really good way to put it. When you have some copy and the performance of the copy is mission critical, who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters. They don't do copy critiques last time I checked. 
A lot of people, from the most advanced to the up-and-coming copywriters, reach out to me. I do copy critiques. One client, Brett Alcorn, has hired me 20 times. Yep, 20 times. That's because on the very first critique I did for him, he doubled his conversions on a video sales letter. Every month, I do a handful of critiques for GKIC members. These are copywriters and small business owners who are trained and experienced, but they need another set of experienced eyes to go over their copy to take it to the next level. One A-lister told me I go over a copy like an IRS auditor. Now, I wasn't sure whether to take that as a compliment or not, but he assured me it was. He said, I can find the one flaw or several flaws in copy that no one else was able to and make winning suggestions on how to fix them. So when you need a copy critique, just go to garfinkelcoaching.com and click on the services tab, garfinkelcoaching.com for a critique. Thank you. And now back to the show. Let's go to the third thing on our list, which is proof of claims. And the question here that you want to keep top of mind when you're looking at this part is how convincing is your proof? Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, I thought it would be interesting to look at the word proof as it applies to distilled spirits, you know, booze. Originally, the term comes from 16th century England. It was part of the formula the government used to tax whiskey. The higher the proof, the higher the tax. But I had a random thought to share as well. You know the old saying, the old Roman saying, in vino veritas? It means, under the influence of wine, a person tells the truth. Well, crank that up with whiskey, and you get even more truth. There's your proof. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Just a thought experiment. But here's something more practical. The simple fact is, the most powerful claim in the world is worthless if your prospect doesn't believe it. And proof is how you get them to believe. So when you're looking at the proof, you can find it in different forms. There's logical proof. There are lots of ways to do it. And to be honest, most people aren't very good at this. I mean, lawyers spend three years learning how to do it. And as we're seeing in the news lately, even some of them haven't learned. Here's an easy way to do logical proof. You can use one of Tom Donnelly's brilliant story formulas. As a member of Tom, he was on our show recently, the Hollywood a screenwriting guru, he has this formula, if, then, before. If something, then I'll give you an example. If you still can't critique your copy, then you should get some help. Therefore, contact me for a professional critique of your copy. That went pretty well, I think. I mean, I did prove my point, didn't I? Another form of proof is emotional proof. And this is something that creates a feeling of affinity, connection, commonality with your prospect. It's usually not enough on its own, but it can go a long way to creating belief. One example of this is speaking in the language of your customer. Gary Halbert had a knack for that like no one else I've ever seen, and it was one of his secret weapons. A third kind of proof is metaphor or a simile. Sometimes this is emotional proof. Other times, a metaphor or simile is making your mechanisms seem real. And other times it can clarify a point and simply make it more real in your prospect's mind. Here are a couple of similes that Howard used to strategically to get people to buy into what he was saying. 
clear as a bell, pretty as a picture. I know, it sounds corny here, but in context, these things work like crazy. Now, this is what I was hinting at before, my famous law of work as it applies to proof. I've brought up the law of work on the podcast before, but it's worth mentioning. Again, it goes like this. The person who does the work gets paid. And what does that mean? Well, in the worst case, the prospect has to do a lot of work to figure out how your proof actually verifies anything. So they get paid by keeping the money they should have spent with you and would have spent too if you had done your job to convince them. And that leads us to the best case. You've done the work to make the proof simple and instantly understandable, easy to grasp in your copy. The prospect buys, so you get paid. Ideally, the prospect should have to do no work at all. That's your job. And I've saved the saddest to last. The sad truth is most copywriters use no proof at all. Big mistake. Here's why. When you don't use proof, it means either you expect people to believe what you're saying just on the face of it, which usually they won't do, or your very obvious implicit reason they should believe you is spelled out in the unspoken phrase, trust me. The prospect says, why should I? And moves on. 99 times out of 100 using no proof at all is the express train to failure. I want to add one version of proof that I find to be the probably the most convincing. It's a little bit difficult to pull off in just regular text copy, but in video sales letters and actual in-person selling, demonstrating. If you've got a vacuum and you make a claim that it can clean your floors and you put the vacuum nozzle on a bowling ball and you can lift the bowling ball and demonstrate the power of the vacuum right there in front of somebody or on a VSL, that demonstration knocks down almost every single wall of disbelief out there. That's a really good point. And yes, I've always thought demonstration is the best way to sell, but I never thought of it as proof, but you're 100% right. It is. So you know what? From now on, I'm going to think of demonstration as proof too. Nice. Thank you for that. Okay. Number four, testimonials. Picking up the pace a bit here. The question you need to ask with testimonials is how well can your target market relate to the people giving the testimonials? And here you've got two things to look at. The people giving the testimonials, but also what they're saying. There are two kinds of people you want giving testimonials. People who in your market, whether it's mass market or niche market, in that market are well-known. Celebrities, authorities, experts. Or the second kind of person is people who are just like your prospect in your prospect's mind. People that your prospects will identify with. Now, just as important as the people is that you want these, who they are is you want them to talk about what's important to your prospect, which means what's relevant to the desires and concerns your prospect has. So let's say you're selling a fitness prospect. Let's say you're selling a fitness product and maybe a lot of people are interested in how efficient it is. It seems like everyone has less than zero time these days, except to write copy. That is, we have lots of time for that. 
So if the product, the fitness product, is sturdy and it seems like it will last forever, if that's something that only impresses one customer, not the efficiency, but the sturdiness, but that customer is so over the top that he gives you a beautiful testimonial about it, unless sturdiness and durability are a big thing in your market in general, maybe you don't want to feature that testimonial too prominently or even at all. But if all your customers or nearly all your customers are worried about efficiency and one of your customers says he got great results using your product only 90 seconds a day, and that seems reasonable based on your own knowledge of the product, then that's a testimonial you want to feature. You could be totally over the moon that this guy said it looks sturdy. It's like, oh man, we put so much engineering into this thing to make it sturdy. And now there's someone who finally recognizes our achievement and appreciates it. Okay, great. But in terms of marketing, in terms of testimonials, what you want to focus on is what your market thinks is important, not what you do. Sometimes past customers or even happy past customers give horrible test testimonials because they don't know what we're looking for or what works in a testimonial. So just something that I do, I'm just going to add to this is I kind of coach people on what I want from their testimonials. So usually I'll ask a couple of questions. What was it that was frustrating you so bad about your previous state of being that caused you to reach out? What was it like working with me? And what's the best result that you've gotten since working with me? And just having that kind of story flow and them knowing these are the points that we want to hit in the testimonials is a good thing. It might vary from niche to niche, but I guess just your thoughts on leaving the previous clients and customers up to their own devices when coming up with testimonials versus giving them a little bit of a guideline of what you're looking for. Yeah. Well, my first thought is if you can get the testimonial before they become previous clients and customers, you're better off because you want to strike while the iron is hot. And just like we were talking about before with enthusiasm, you know, the more enthusiasm the person has, the more the testimonial is going to ring out and, and resonate with the person reading or watching your copy. But as far as giving them guidance, I, I think that's an excellent formula that you have. And maybe people need to rewind the audio or the video a little bit to, to go over it. I think it's perfect. That kind of story, sort of a transformation of the, themselves or their experience doing a certain thing or the state of their business. And certainly in a lot of cases, that's what people are looking for. But yeah, I think it's a really good idea. Nice. Okay. What do we got next? Last one for today is objections. With objections, you need to determine how well do you as the copywriter anticipate and answer objections that come up in the prospect's minds as they read through or listen to your copy. And I got to say right off the bat, this is where real life sales experience comes in handy. Once you've dealt with this in real time, face to face, sort of buried in, in your neurology, in your sinews, in your tendons, your capillaries, in your myelin. I don't really know much about anatomy, <laughs> but I'm trying to make it sound like I do. This is where, well, I know a few things, huge gaps in my knowledge. Typical objections 
people have to offer are, why does it cost so much? Why should I buy from you? Why now? Is it safe to buy from you? Will it work? And will it work for me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's marketing myopia to think that no objections will come up. Most experienced salespeople say sales usually don't happen unless some objections are brought up and answered. And the same thing is true in copy. There may also be unique objections between, besides the last five that I was talking about, unique to what you're selling. If the copy you're critiquing doesn't handle those unique objections, you'll be missing out on sales later on. And it's worth finding out what those objections are. A few ways you can do this, selling your offer in person or on the phone, talking to salespeople or customer service people, and from online comments. And when you're answering objections, you can answer them directly or indirectly. So let me give you an example of each one. Here's a direct answer. The objection is, why should you get computer supplies from us? And the direct answer is, because we have more customers than anyone else in the industry. And a survey by J.D. Powers shows that our customers stay with us longer than any other supplier which I guess explains why we have more customers. Okay, now let's do an indirect answer to the question, why does it cost so much? Someone thinking about becoming a client often wonders about my fees, but the one thing I hear over and over again is, I had a record month last month. Your services paid for themselves three times over. So indirect and direct. Before I wrap up, do you want to say anything about objections? Sometimes objections are legitimate and you just got to let them know, okay, yeah, this is probably not going to work for you. This is probably not the best solution for you. And I guess an example would be, say you're selling a certain type of plant and it grows all over the United States, but it just won't grow in Arizona and letting people know, yeah, if you live in Arizona, this is probably not the plant for you because of this, this, and this. But that also means that if you live in Idaho or Massachusetts or wherever else, this is the perfect plant for you. Letting people know, yeah, there are some reasons why this might not be for you, but if you don't fit these reasons, then it's definitely for you. I think I've heard Ben Settle call this making your skeletons dance, Letting, admitting to, yeah, some objections are legitimate, and if you're not somebody who has these legitimate objections, then this is definitely something for you. Adds a lot more proof to the claim because people feel like, oh, he's not just trying to sell ice to Eskimos. He's only trying to sell ice to people who have a nice glass of lemonade, and I've got that nice glass of lemonade. Yeah, that is such a great point. There's nothing that creates distrust among a lot of people than someone who says, I have the answer to everything. There, there are no ifs, ands, or buts, or exceptions. There are exceptions to what I'm talking about here, but for the most part, that will create distrust, and there's nothing that creates trust better than saying, this might not be for you. It is for you if A, B, and C, and D, but it's not for you if A, B, C, and D. People go, that guy sounds like he's, he's honest. All right, let me recap and preview This will just take a minute or two. We looked at five things today when you're critiquing your own copy, and they are grabability, determined by the question. Does your copy grab the reader's or viewer's attention from the start and hold on tight to the end? Number two, your claims. How unique and believable are they? Number three, proof of claims. How convincing is your proof? Number four, testimonials. How well can your target market 
relate to the people giving the testimonials and to what they're saying. And objections, how well do you anticipate and answer your prospect's objections? And for next time, we will talk about the six final things to look at. And if you want to book me for a copy critique, go to garfinkelcoaching.com forward slash copy hyphen critiques. And we put that in the show notes. A lot of times as copywriters, we run into the situation where we're dealing with a client and they are so stuck in the frame that they can't see the the problems with their messaging. As copywriters, we deal with this too. A lot, of, a lot of times we get stuck in the frame and we don't see the glaring problems with our messaging. So having somebody like you, David, to be able to come in and give us a critique is just as valuable to us as we are to our clients. So I just wanted to end the episode with that. That's a great way to put it. Thank you. All right, man. And until next time, if you want to catch more episodes of this podcast, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com and we will catch you later. Catch you later. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app so we can get into ears of more listeners. Thank you. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.